today on the Scott Radley Show on AM 900 CHML. We have reassembled the brightest panel in Hamilton Radio this evening. From my left, you're on your left on your radio dial, Sandy Shaw of the Hamilton Port Authority of Cable 14's Wednesday Council, mm-hmm. what do you call it? The pre-show? The, the pre-game show. The red carpet show? <laughs> it's the pre-game, yes, exactly. What is Lloyd Ferguson wearing? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> who are you wearing, Lloyd? <laughs> you should do that next time. That Sam, who are you wearing? That would be That'd funny. That would be very funny, actually. I think Tom Jackson would score well on that. He always has some dapper outfits. You think so? Yes, who do you think does. would actually be the least stunned if you asked that question and would actually go, huh, what? Because I, I think they would, you would get blank stares. <laughs> Jason Farr, who are you wearing? <laughs> I'm, yeah, I'm not going to touch that <laughs> one, yeah. <laughs> uh, that is uh, Sandy Shaw. Next to her, a, and both of them veterans, Scott Urquhart, formerly of CHCH, now of Irked. Irkedfreelance.com. Irkedfreelance.com, and that would be with a U. So figure out that spelling. U-R-Q-U-R-K-E-D-O. You made it easy. Yeah. Irkedfreelance.com if you need freelance done. Scott would be a great guy to give a call to if you're a business, if you're a person, if you want your grandmother's story written. What else can you do? Uh, just about anything you want. The speeches, uh, all kinds. Well, Speeches—that's a good one. Yeah, you name it. Yeah, we'll tackle anything. You know what you should get into? I've always said this. I'm waiting for somebody who is a writer to find a job rewriting or at least writing in English instructions for putting things together. <laughs> because I mean, you open up any box from any company and you look at the instructions, and the person who wrote these clearly was nabbed off some foreign country who'd never spoke, spoken English before and they said here's 40 English words put them in some random order and make it work I think I think the problem is that usually there's one critical step missing in that <laughs> whole thing somewhere I think the steps aren't missing. It's just you gentlemen that don't read all the instructions. Well, there is that too, but they're always oh, so sexy. It is, really. isn't it? Several years ago, I had to put together a barbecue that I brought home. And I don't know if you've ever seen the pictures when a plane has crashed or the space <laughs> yeah. shuttle. And they have a huge warehouse and they sort of lay all the pieces that they can regather in, like they've just laid it out almost in the shape of the vehicle. That's what my garage looked like. And then I get the instruction manual. And there were like four words. Right. And then a diagram <laughs> with lines going. I mean, it looked like the battle plan for D-Day. And you thought Ikea was bad. I was going to say, those two, <laughs> those two little naked guys from Ikea, yeah, there's no yeah. words at all. You can put together the space shuttle with an Allen key as far as it, Ikea is concerned. Man, you know, we, we need somebody to, do, uh, to have a business that actually rewrites or goes around and in human English terms writes instructions for, for things we have to put together. There's a business there, I'm telling yeah. you. Whether that's you or not, there's a business there. Uh, speaking of, um, well, no, there's no segue at all here. Just uh, l- yeah. let's get to the first thing I want to talk about tonight. Uh, I tried hard to think of a segue, but it's Friday night. <laughs> just not working. Uh, we heard this week, this is, a, this is a serious, serious topic, in fact. We heard uh, this week of a um, terror plot that was taken down by Canadian police with the help of American authorities of a guy who, uh, it appears was ready to do some serious damage and all we've heard is that it was going to be to some urban center and there was a plan in place and that he was I mean ISIS has taken credit for him although I don't know if you take credit for a guy who failed miserably at his plot but anyway they are made me wonder because we've had everything I mean Europe has been tormented by this in recent months the states has had terror attacks have we simply Scott been lucky in Canada or has there, or are we really good at this stuff? Cause it strikes me that maybe our time is coming and I hate to say that, but it just, it seems like we may just be lucky. Well, I, I think there's a combination of things working here. Yeah. I think we are lucky to an extent. I think also, um, Canada is not as high on the list of targets that, uh, terrorists would like to hit as larger countries like the United States, like England, like France. Uh, those ones are, are major targets that are going to get big exposure. Canada, maybe not so much. But whether we're, um, we're prepared for this, I, I'm not sure. And I don't think anyone is really sure because we don't have any information to tell us one way or the other what CSIS is doing, what the RCMP is doing, how well we're, te- we're protected. That, that tip this week came from the FBI. Right. Does that mm-hmm. mean that they knew before we knew what was going on in our own country? And if they did, how? And if they did, Sandy, does that not again go back to the point, are we lucky right now? Because if they hadn't found out, if the FBI or the CIA or whoever it was in the States hadn't found this, 
it sounds as though we would have had a huge problem on our that's, hands this that's week. That's right. And it, even just to step back a bit further, from my perspective, I am stunned that there's so little coverage on this, to be, to be honest with you. So had this been something that happened in a small town, I think it was Strathroy in Ontario where it happened, had it happened in a small town in anywhere in the U.S., this would be blanket coverage. And I really am surprised at the, the, the lack of coverage and the lack of those, those kinds of questions that you had mentioned. I mean, what is what are we doing? What, how prepared is CSIS? And how did the tip come from the FBI and, and the RCMP? How are they involved? So, you know, I, I think this... This, uh, you know, I know your question is, are we lucky? I think that we don't can't really necessarily answer that because we don't know whether these things are being prevented and we're not hearing about it, or in fact we we just aren't a target, uh, as you had also had said, Scott, that we're not necessarily a target. I think it also brings that whole notion drives it home of the whole um, idea of that you know when people are ISIS, when these people are radicalized, it's almost like they're self radicalized. I don't necessarily mm-hmm. think that ISIS. I don't don't know, but my guess would be ISIS didn't seek out this young man that he himself chose to to, to identify with. And he had ISIS. no Middle Eastern background. Right. He didn't come no. from a Muslim no. background. Right. He found his way somehow into the bosom of ISIS right. in some fashion, which right. I don't really. I mean, I've been trying to read up on it, but it's really unclear how he exactly was brought into this. And it could be any disaffected person That's in society. Right angry, looking for some some means to express that anger. And, uh, yeah, I think to an extent we, we are kind of lucky here. And it's not that Canada is not a target for terrorism. I don't want to suggest that at all. I just think that there are more, um, there are bigger targets and more important targets. Well, right. If you are someone who wants to make a point, blowing up something in New York is going to get you a whole lot more attention than blowing up something in London, Ontario. Right. And, and that's just the reality, because you're going to go where you're going to make the biggest splash. And and so maybe the fact is that we don't have as many big cities here as they do in the States has benefited us somehow. But I just, I, when I look at this, and Scott, you hit it exactly the point. When you look at this and you realize we were tipped off to this by the Americans, it suggests to me that we're re- we, I, I just look at this and go, we're really lucky. If that call hadn't come, nobody's talking about the Olympics today. Nobody's talking about Rosie McLennan's gold medal. Nobody's talking about the weather. We're talking about probably a bomb going off in Toronto's subway or something mm-hmm. like that. And it's a disaster. Right. And I mm. think, I mean, we, we, uh, we had... Um, I mean, we had Nathan Cirillo, which was our experience of a lone wolf attack. And I, I think it's been pretty quiet since then. But I think it highlights how vulnerable we are. And mm. I guess, again, I'm not in law enforcement and intelligence. But I, I mean, w- when we're talking about, essentially, we're talking about um, maybe vulnerable people or not stable people who are identifying with ISIS. That's a really, in my opinion, a really difficult uh, path to predict where they're, wh- where these people are and how to prevent them. So, But they knew where this guy was. Yeah, they, they, they knew this guy was. They found him very quickly. Yeah. Well, yeah. because they knew he was already on probation they, or parole or something for being involved, for writing things online, online before. Yeah. And yet he still, now they stopped him. They stopped him. And, and so thank goodness. But he was still, even as a guy who was identified and known to them, he still came this close from being able to do some serious damage. And I, I guess I don't, I'm trying to make this point. I'm not quite so work with me here as I try to form this thought. But the idea that you don't need to be have a big stage like New York City. You can be in Canada and still want to have and be uh, still want to have the same impact just because you're not from New York or, or for example, what does Obama call them, the JV team? You know, you're not part of a really highly orchestrated ISIS attack. You can be one of these lone wolf people in a small town like Strathroy and still have the same uh, impact, kill the same number of people. So, you know, they're, they're, the, ex- the risk... You know, the risk is high whether it's a big city and it's a big coordinated attack or whether it's just someone that is is flying under the radar and has got access to all kinds of weaponry. And another point I I just want to touch upon is that uh, Canada, to some extent, may be able or may have been able to sort of decrease the number of lone wolf strikes out there, people who are disenfranchised, just because it has gone out of its way to take in Syrian refugees, to show that it does care. I don't know how much of an impact our national reputation may have, our actions may have had, but it seems to me that there are outlets 
and, and more going on here to keep people from taking radical paths than there might be elsewhere. But uh, Europe took in millions. Millions. And many of those are, but once well, not they, many, but a number of though the terrorist attacks that are happening there would indicate that showing compassion hasn't necessarily deterred the odd person. And again, we're not talking if 25,000 Syrians came into Canada, we're not talking about 25,000 who hate the country. All no, you need no. is one or two or three. Right. And in Europe, we've seen that, that with millions of, of refugees that have come in, there are a handful, there are a few. Unfortunately, that few has been able to create great havoc. Well, well the point came up in the Brexit debate about this, about why. Why are we in this situation where uh, there seems to be so much racism arising? And that was one of the issues that came to the fore, was that there wasn't enough effort being made inside of Britain to keep, uh, especially youth, from becoming radicalized. Right. They were isolated, and they were ignored, and uh, they weren't given the same sorts of um, sort of social safety net that they might receive here in Canada. So you're making a great argument about why you know a healthy social service uh, safety net is also a, a, a good argument for public uh, public safety issue as well, because in some of those those countries, I, I guess you know I don't know clearly, but it's not hasn't been Syrian refugees that have caused some of, have been participating in some of the worst calamities. In fact, it's been you know, French nationals, people that have been born and grown, grown up in P the suburbs of Paris. And I think we've talked about this on this show before. A lot of that has to do with the fact that they live in extreme poverty. They're, they feel completely disenfranchised. There's no hope. They're, you know, they, they don't have jobs or futures. So they are, the conditions are so ripe there to radicalize these, you know, these, you know, French born citizens that in fact do not even though they may even be second generation French citizens don't feel that they belong or that they're part of the, 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 the country at all. We just have a couple of minutes before our first break, but Canada's interesting. Yeah, well, we'll, we'll get, yeah, Canada is up one nothing on France. Speaking of France, Canada has gone up <laughs> one nothing in the women's soccer game in the women's quarterfinal. Um, there was a lot of talk. There were promises made in the last federal election with Bill C-51 that Canada was going to pull back a little bit on its anti-terrorism, on its things that it was doing to keep the country safe. When you hear about a case like this with a guy who isn't even an, a refugee, he's a, he's a homegrown, not Muslim, not Middle Eastern guy who has found his way to this. Does it make you wonder whether this is really the time to pull back or do we still go ahead with the plan and say, well, you know what? It's, um, yeah, we're going to do it. We said we were going to do it. We're going to do it. How, does this make us think differently? Well, to to be, uh, I'm not going to answer your question clearly because I don't know. How's that? I, I'm a you know notorious fence sitter because I like to really reflect on it. But I think in this particular case, it's not really so much. I mean, it is the, the net effect of this terrorism. But I really honestly feel like in this case, it's a mental health issue. It's an isolation issue. I don't think this. And I, I you know, I, I'm putting. But it would have still been terrorism. It, it, exactly at the end of the day. So what? But what I'm saying is maybe Bill C-51 doesn't provide the kind of remedies or the kinds of actions that would have addressed this particular case. Maybe this guy just was a was in a strange. It would not have directly. Health. You're yeah. right. Yeah. But what the what the issue with C-51 is? It was about do how much do we want to allow the government to tap phones, mm -hmm. to tap right. conversations, right. and they they knew about this guy through because of that kind of stuff. And so it's not directly, this particular moment was not directly the C-51 thing, but Scott, does it not make you wonder a little bit if, if, we, if we knew who this guy was, we didn't solve it. The Americans told us about mm -hmm. what was going on, but we knew, we knew where to find him because of what we knew from before. Well, I think, you know, to maybe uh, debate you on the, on the point of how we found out, uh, we don't know how the Americans knew. We don't know whether it was a phone tap, whether it was, a, you know, satellite surveillance, whether it was cell phones, we don't know. But is it time to follow through on that promise to pull back on C-51? Absolutely, I think it is. I think, uh, uh, you know, giving up civil freedoms in, in the hope of uh, making your country safer is almost an oxymoron. Uh, would, that, would that have been the answer? I, honestly, would that have been the answer if he had succeeded and blown up a Toronto streetcar or a Toronto subway and killed 100 people? Absolutely. I, and I'll tell you why. Because... The vast majority of, of terrorist incidents are not committed by uh, people coming from outside. 
They're from people who are from the inside. Uh, certainly in the United States, that's the case. In Britain, that's been the case. In France, mm, well, we have had people come in from elsewhere to, to generate some of this uh, terrorist activity. But in the vast majority of cases, it's not the people out there that you've got to worry about. It's the people within your own borders that you've got to worry about. And that's where I think it comes back to you have to pay attention to make sure they don't become radicalized in the first place. And that doesn't mean watching uh, everything they say on the computer, on the cell phone, on, on their home phones. You know, it doesn't mean satellites in the air, drones everywhere. It means making an effort to make them a part of your country. One, one other point to that then, then, we, then we'll go to the break. There was a kid, we, we heard that the story was brought up again this week. If you recall, there was a story down in the States of the student who brought a homemade, he called it a clock, to his school, and the principal saw this and thought it looked like a bomb, and so they called the police. Now, I still say, even though it's, you know, some people will differ, when I looked at the picture of this clock, it didn't look anything like a clock. It looked sufficiently <laughs> enough like something sus- unlike a clock that if I'm a principal, I'm probably doing the same thing. Because here's the difficulty with what you're saying, Scott. And I, and I, I don't, I don't want to have everyone listening to every phone conversation of mine or anyone else. But the, the statement has been made in past. If you see something, say something. So we're not going to have everyone tapping into Scott Urquhart's phone line. But if Scott Urquhart is staying out in the backyard, mixing chemicals and doing stuff, you know, and it looks suspicious, call the police. The problem we have now, though, is that if you call the police and it happens to be someone who is a minority or someone who has come over or someone who is from here and what they're doing isn't illegal, well, now you're a racist. Yeah. So it has, we, we've almost been put in the position that says, if you see something, Say something, but only if you're absolutely positive, because otherwise you will be made to look like a bad person. And it, like it, the whole thing, my point is the entire thing has become very complicated. Oh, we we yeah, want to no be doubt. safe. We want tapping, but we don't want tapping. We want to say something, but we don't really want to step into that. And then we end up with a situation like this. And I agree with both of you. I don't know what the answer is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know what the answer is on this one. We're just thankful they got this guy. Because right. the out the uh, the the, uh, the alternative is horrifying. Right. If Absolutely, we are suddenly yeah. now a European country that is having terror attacks on our soil day after day, and you called it, it's complex. There's so many intersecting issues here that it's very complex. But I think what we I think we can almost all agree that we don't want to take measures. Um, that will lead us to where we, what the kinds of, uh, the kind of division that you see in the U.S. right now. I mean, I, I'm kind of fascinated with the election, as is everyone, I think, right now. And I mean, those hu- hugely uh, div- divisive, entrenched ideas that border on, you know, blatant racism and allows has allowed what looks like blatant racism to be a okay in the in the public domain. I don't think any Canadians want to go down that road. So if we move in the direction of some of the Bill C-51, um, uh, you know, some of the, the measures in the Bill C-51, I think we also, we certainly want to make sure that we're not, uh, we're not doing it, at, as you said, trampling on our, our civil rights. At the same time, we want to make sure that there aren't unintended consequences of going in that route as well. Yeah. It's, you know what? Because again, it's, uh, we love freedoms and so we should until someone we love or someone we know is hurt by someone. Absolutely. And then we say, why didn't you do more to mm-hmm. protect them? No, I understand that point of view, but I, I, I'm going to take exception to one thing you said, terrorist attacks day after day. They don't happen day after day. They're rare. They rarely happen anywhere in the world. At the moment, uh, and I, I just read this uh, today, an article today, uh, 94% of the world is at peace right now. There's only 6% of the, of the world's population that's involved in conflict. And for the first time in, in history, there is no conflict currently ongoing in the Western Hemisphere. So it's a lot more safe out there and a lot more calm than we're led to believe sometimes. In the Western world, possibly. There's, there's, a, there's a website that lists every terror attack that has happened this year. Now, some of these are one person right. doing something. And they list 1,274 terror attacks that have happened. Now, some of those are someone doing one thing to one person. It's, but over here, you're right. We don't, we, in North America, in the West, we don't see it every day. It's just, 
as I say, it, when, it, when it does hit home, when it does come close to us, we say, why are you not doing more? When it doesn't hit here, we, we say around. we want more freedoms. And it becomes a very difficult thing because if this guy had managed to pull off the attack that he wanted to, every single person in this country would have said, what was CSIS doing? Why did they not catch this guy? Why were they not yeah, following that, this guy? Absolutely, that's right. And yeah. that's when it becomes difficult because do you want to... Ultimately, do you want to make sure or do everything we can to get to ferret out these people and stop them at the risk, at the, at the cost of losing some of our freedoms? Or do you want to say, no, we want our freedoms and you know what? Horrible as it is, if one of these slips through the cracks, that may be the cost. I, I think people's ultimate fear about these kinds of measures is, is the, the abuse of these kinds of powers. And I, I think of that course. The, you know, the ex, the, I think the devil's in the details and how they're implemented and what the, what the checks and balances are, that, that would give people the kind of uh, confidence to even consider some of these measures, I think. And, and interestingly, as we go to break, it seems to me, and you can feel free to disagree if you're listening, but it seems to me that our confidence in the government to be responsible with these powers is directly proportionate to whether it is a government you voted for in office. <laughs> if it's a government that you did not vote for, it's a dangerous, scary thing that they have the powers. If there's a government you support, they will use it responsibly, and these are good things. Well, maybe I'm an ex- exception to the rule, because I, I, don't, I don't think it's good in anybody's hands. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. Sandy, we, uh, we heard today and yesterday there was talk at city council about redoing, in a sense, part of Confederation Park. They want to now, the first step is going to be taking a campground area that's there and turning it into pickleball courts and cricket courts. Two things we probably would never have guessed were going to be on the agenda. <laughs> uh, but it's all part of a larger $40 million plan for Confederation Park is... What should we do? I mean, I, I know there's a plan. Is wh- What is the ideal use for a place like Confederation Park? It's down in the water. It's got lots of space. It's a public, essentially a public recreation and parkland. What should we be doing with a place like that? Other than, I don't say building a stadium. <laughs> no, <laughs> I wouldn't have no, said but that. No, yeah. You know what? That ship has sailed and a lot of people think it should have been there. But w- what is an ideal use for a place like that? Well, I think that the vision has always been that that part of the the waterfront will be publicly accessible, that there will be amenities and recreation available for people in in Hamilton. Not everyone, I think the argument is that not everyone can go to a cottage every couple of weeks, Scott. (laughs) And so that the idea that that our waterfront, exactly, (laughs) uh, the idea that our waterfront uh, provide is actually uh, there's services and recreation and amenities for the residents makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, it has been that I forget what is it called the Wild Waterworks or the water slide. I mean, that's an aging structure. Uh, For a while there, they had the Lakeland Pool that was well, well used, but it just was sort of neglected over the years. And so I think this has always been the vision. Um, I, I I like the, the direction that, and this is pretty much driven by Councillor Collins uh, because this falls within his purview. And also really it actually is an extension of the vision of the Hamilton Waterfront Trust as well. They are responsible for the trail system down there. So the trails attract something like 500,000 visitors a year. So I can't, I think this is the highest and best use for, for that, for that uh, property. Camping is exciting. I'd never even considered that you could camp in, you know, in the in the boundaries of Hamilton proper. So I, I think that I think that it's a will be a welcomed investment. I also think that it's certainly interesting that we all get to learn about what what the heck pickleball actually is because I didn't know. <laughs> it's it's kind of a tennis with a wooden paddle it on is. a small it's court. Like it's 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 very popular with seniors, right. quite frankly. I mean, some other people do it, but it's it's interesting because they're talking about pickleball and a, and a cricket court. I mean, right. you're looking to offer some things that don't really exist in town. But Scott, one of the funny things about this, which is opposite to, I think, a lot of our natural tendencies when we talk about public money. When I heard this today and yesterday, and I'm thinking about Confederation Park and what you could do, my thought was, well, maybe $40 million is enough, but this seems to me to be such a huge opportunity, almost to the point of whatever it takes. This is a great opportunity to do something that you can make as a central point, as a hub. If if it's 50, if it's 60, let's do it, as long as we do it right. Well, look how long it took uh, 
took us to get the West Harbor launched. Yeah. I mean, that's that's been a project. Uh, I, I came here in 1981. Uh, I think uh, they got the Lax property in about 1983, and it's really only been in the last decade maybe not even the last decade, that the West uh, Harbor has really started to take off. And that was a long-term proposition. Uh, the East End is, is a, a different challenge altogether, I think. Um, once you start heading down uh, Beach Road there, Beach Boulevard, and you get past Barangas, uh, yeah, you're, there's not much happening there. There's some industrial warehouses and some other things, and Confederation Park, which is largely open to nothing. Um, Forty million dollars will that will that do it? I don't know, but I don't. Would think- you be willing to? I mean, it's public money, but when yeah. you look at it, would you say if it has to be more than that? Because I'm I'm of the opinion that if it has to be more than that to do it right, let's do it right. I think you need to get um, some private interests involved. I don't think throwing buckets of public money at it will will launch it. I mean, we've tried that in the past with some of the other things. While Waterworks was uh, public money, that was a thing the city did. It's done arguably reasonably well. It certainly hasn't been the success that it was once envisioned, that's for sure. And now, as Sandy says, it needs a lot of uh, uh, work. It needs a facelift. And that $40 million isn't going to go towards the facelift that's needed on the only anchor property that's there pretty much right now. We have a, let's call it a four-month warm period in this Mm -hmm. city where you can... you know, be using wild waterworks and be using camping or whatever else. Is it a wise investment for the $40 million that it sounds like most of it is going to be based on summertime activities? Or should we be looking at something that is, yeah, do the pickleball if you want and do the the cricket, but we got to make this, it's a place where people are going to be all year round. Because if you have it all year round, then you're talking about private mm-hmm. industry. Then some restaurants might want to pop up there or some other things you can start to expand out of there if there's bodies that are going to be there what restaurateur is going to open up a restaurant if he's only going to have business four months a year and i know hutches is down there right all right but they're a unique yeah, hamilton they're a destination uh, sort right. of thing right that's right but if you're but do we not need to make it for sure that this is a year-round thing let's have people there 12 months a year and then let's see what spins off of this you mean we won't be camping in December? Well, <laughs> maybe you have an insulated <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I, I think that, you know, it, maybe it's a bit of a case of if we build it, they will come. And I think that, you know, if you're trying to launch a really good business case for a private investment, you have to make sure that you can prove that you've got the numbers, whether it's seasonal or not. I mean, you can do, you can really make hay uh, with certain businesses if it is only, you know, a, a summer, spring, summer, th- maybe three season uh, uh, year that you have to work with. So, you know, I think that if the city were, you know, I think this is a step in the right direction because it gets the ball going. It gets interest up there. It starts to get the the dialogue and the narrative going that this is a well-used area. The trails, I, I don't imagine that I would be down there in the winter, but I imagine that the trail system is quite extensive down there, and I imagine that that gets used quite quite well in the winter. So I think that, I don't think this precludes the, the sort of, you know, partnerships that we're talking about with, with, uh, with uh, private money. The city hasn't always had the greatest experience with those kinds of partnerships, so I think that they probably have to get good at, at managing those as well before they open up what is what is in some way, uh, well, you know, the city is, is the steward of uh, this, this public jewel, if you will, on the waterfront, and they have to really get good at, at, at uh, carving out good deals with private enterprise before they start to open it up, I would say. And I that's a great word. I mean, a jewel is a great word because it may not be a jewel at this moment, mm-hmm. but Scott, to me, it seems like it has so much potential if it's done right to be a destination in this city. I, I agree with you, but uh, who's going to do it right? And, and I, I disagree with Sandy to some extent in that, no. you know, if you, build, <laughs> if, you, if you build it, they will come. No, we've had bad experience building things mm-hmm. and people didn't come. Right. Um, I mean, apart from while Waterworks down there, there's a, there was a go-kart track at one point. There was a, the baseball batting cages. They refurbished Lakeland Pool and, and the attendance went up for about a year and then didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've, we've certainly done things, not just uh, in, in that area of the city, but across the city where we've tried to build things and and entice people to come and uh, the waterfront center is is another example the federal government put that up for us it languished for a couple of years before uh, it was finally taken over by private interests so you you can't just say yeah we're going to throw this up here and people will flock to it i don't think that's ever been the case in hamilton Um, and i think right from the start scott if we're going to do it right we've got to have a, a holistic vision 
involving not just the city and some money we're going to throw at it, but some partnerships from private mm-hmm. interests that say, okay, if you throw $40 million at this, then we will you know, offer this to go with it. I think that's where we need to start. I think we're we're putting the car, uh, cart ahead of the horse. I think we could extend the LRT to Confederation <laughs> yeah. Park. Well, apparently, uh, you know, Chad didn't want that. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I'm happy to say I think we actually agree because when I said if we build it they will come what I meant was if we showcase to private investment that they're that, that we are the city of the taxpayers are prepared to put an investment in that they may be they're prepared to match it I think maybe I don't know if that yeah. makes more if that's more what you had in line because that's what I was saying I mean I think that you know that people are using that area and um, am I because I I was definitely like a West Ender but so there's that there's the uh, the bridge that goes across right. the the QEW to make to have access that area's changed a little you know transformed Yeah the trail the trail's the most the most used most part used. of that area and yeah. since Centennial Parkway is no longer the highway since they mm-hmm. built the Red Hill Creek there's a, it's really changed a lot and even in terms of I think the east end of Hamilton is very culturally diverse. There's a lot of newcomers that live in in in, in that area of Hamilton, particularly an area called Riverdale, where mm-hmm. there's a lot of people living in uh, in apartments and rental units, so they don't have access to green space. So right. I think it will it's used by the residents of Hamilton. Whether or not it will drive the kind of public private partnerships that will ease the taxpayers. Here's what we need, though, Sandy, to make that happen. And, and reading in the spec right now online, it's talking about how ultimately the $40 million investment is going to include a central commercial village, mm-hmm. trails, boardwalks, public art, infrastructure improvements. That's all fine. But you have to have something that is not niche. You have to have something that is going to be a real draw year-round, in my mind, for people uh, to come down agree and that, saying, yeah. we're going to have some art displays up there mm-hmm. and we're going to have trails. That's all lovely. But you know what? There are trails all over this city. Why do I want to drive all the way to Confederation right. Park if I live in Westdale, if I can go on a trail somewhere else? What is going to be there for that $40 million bucks? So like an anchor tenant. That is sort of an anchor, something... I hate to use the word, but something exciting, something that is going to say, I've got to go there. And when I get there, there's lots to do. I can stay there and it's worth my drive. I'll go to Hutch's, but then I'll also do whatever else. If it's just, we're going to go there and there's going to be some small art gallery and some trails and a pickleball court. Want to know something? There is nobody in the West End of Hamilton that will ever make that trip and it'll be a lost opportunity. I'm uh, hoping they do it right. And I'm curious because I also read, uh, when you mentioned the cricket court, uh, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but I think what I read today, I said uh, the cricket uh, field was to be geared towards seniors as well. I heard that, yeah. So is that is that the theme for the new Confederation Park? It's if that's the theme, seniors? if that's the theme, and I think that's for this f- first little project, but if that's the theme, who's going to go? Uh, and, and it's far enough out of the way that even the seniors may not go to yeah, it because how are they going to get, get there? Right. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show weeknights from seven to nine on AM nine hundred CHML. Watched a movie on Netflix this week. Great movie, great documentary. It was called In the Shadow of the Moon. It was about the Apollo program, about putting men on the moon back in the sixties. And it caught me thinking about one really weird thing. Um, Back then, we had astronauts, we had physicists, we had guys who were really, really smart, who were considered cool and considered heroes. Who are the smart people who are heroes now? Because everyone, any kid who has a person that they are a fan of is an entertainer or an athlete, I think. Who are the, the smart, cool people in the world today? Not us. Well, <laughs> besides the, besides the brightest panel Definitely in Hamilton, not me. Radio. I can tell you that much. Yeah. Canada just won, by the way, one nothing oh, over France. Oh, that's amazing! But who who are the do, do we have anybody that stands out? And you go, you know what? Yeah, that person, like Neil Armstrong, who's now unfortunately passed, was considered a really big deal. People wanted to meet Neil Armstrong. Who's the smart guy that people want to meet today? What, what was the, I can't remember the name of the astronaut now, the guitar playing astronaut that we have. Chris Hadfield. Chris, Chris Hadfield. Hadfield. I think he's got a little bit of a cult following. Fair, a good one. Yeah, that's is, fair enough. Is it uh, is it down to guys like now the late Steve Jobs and p- people like that, video game designers? Uh, yeah, maybe but a video of, game. I mean, and I, nothing against video game designers. It seems kind of inconsequential against putting a man on the moon. Yeah, you might look at it in those terms, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. Bill Gates and Steve Jobs, that's another good yeah. one. I mean, those are those are guys I think that a lot of people would look to and say, yeah, that's a smart guy that I... I it just struck me that when you watch this documentary and you watch these guys solving problems on the fly, pardon the pun, while astronauts are hurtling around the moon and potentially could die, 
on a, on a. But we've given up on projects like this. I mean, especially in North America, but all across the West, we've given up on projects that involve so much risk. Because nobody wants to put out that kind of money and risk. Nobody wants to risk astronauts going into space and not coming back. I mean, at the start of it, it was believed to be this is this is mankind reaching out from his own planet. This was really something. This was really something special. And somewhere along the line, we, we lost that drive, that, that frontier mentality to go out there and do something different. And it's now risk aversion. Nope, not going to do that. But that has cost us... I think, turning really smart men and women into heroes. I agree. I agree. Because now we find that the Kardashians and whoever are the ones that that everybody wants to follow. And I mean, could you imagine today, honestly, and I'm not dumping on kids. I'm not, I'm not pulling the old man thing, but could you imagine today a kid going, oh yeah, you know what? That astronaut who whatever is, is the guy that I really want to emulate in my life. There are some out there who would do that. Mm-hmm. But I don't think there's many. No, it's just not cool. It doesn't seem we don't have those heroes that make it cool to be smart. Elon Musk. Elon he, Musk is another he, one that he, is who is weird as weird could be. But man, he is a bright yeah, visionary and, and kind he, of guy. Yeah, he's visionary, and that counts. Yeah. There's not many though. No, there really aren't very many. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show weeknights from seven to nine on AM nine hundred CHML. I believe all of our medals and certainly most of our great performances have been by women in this country so far. So let me play devil's advocate advocate for a second. If the tables were turned and if it was all men who were winning medals and doing wonderful things, I wonder if there would be some calls to say we need to do better to prop up and to support women's sports because our women are falling behind and not able to compete and our men are. Should then we be spending more money supporting men's athletic sports or men's um, <laughs> amateur sports in Canada because our men are falling behind. They can't compete as well as the women. Should we be putting more money into into men's sports as opposed to women's sports now? Well, you're both looking at me. I <laughs> can't see that on radio. <laughs> you but that off, yeah. <laughs> That's right. Well, it seems to me that we do spend more money on men's sports, but I could be wrong there. So you, pro Scott, sports. Yeah. Pro, pro sports. sports. And even in the, I would say, uh, it, is there less, in, uh, tri- okay, uh, historically there has not been the kind of um, investment in women's Olympic sports as there has been. I mean, though we may now be reached parity, but it's taken a while to get to that point. Well, it, when you say historically, on a per capita basis, it has, it's because there's been more men participating that they would then have more money put into the sport. Uh, now, there are more Canadian female Olympians than men Olympians. Our team was 60% women this year, and they are winning all the medals. So, again, at the risk of sounding like a misogynist, which is not the point, <laughs> if we have a classroom where boys are falling behind, we say, well, we have to do something to help them catch up because the girls are dominating the, the are, studies. Are they falling behind, though? Is that, is that what's happening here, or are these guys just not the best crop of guys we've had for okay, a Okay, that's a, that's a you great know? point. Um, and, or and is I, it that there are fewer competitors at the elite level in women's sports because fewer countries take it seriously? That could be the uh, true as well. I mean, that may have, be a factor as well, but my, my view is, no, we don't need to throw any more money at the guys. And, uh, yeah, you go, girl. I'm, I'm really <laughs> I'm really, really impressed by this, and uh, I don't begrudge them one one medal, one victory, one anything. I think uh, they're doing a great job. They're representing Canada. Who cares if they're male or female? Well, and I real and you're right. I mean, ultimately, when someone wins a medal for Canada, I don't think the first thing that people are saying is, "Oh, that's a man. Oh, that's a woman. It's oh, that's a Canadian. That's a medal. That's great." Exactly. But it is Later. highly unusual. I, I think this is an unusual circumstance in any Olympics for Canada that they all seem to be female. But it would be interesting. I think to do kind of a return on investment analysis to see what is the return on this mm. dollar investment in in the Olympic training, men and women, and how many medals do, and how many you know how many finishes does, does that result in? So it would be kind of interesting to see because I agree with you, Scott. It's not just about throwing money at the situation, but if we finally reach parity in terms of supporting women's you know women's sports, uh, that then you know maybe it's just a circumstance that we just don't have the, the best crop as it is right now, but. Do you think it matters to Canadians what sports we win in? Yes. You do? I think a little bit. I mean, there's premier sports. There's sports that really 
again, not to disparage trampoline in any regard, but I think it's not a sport that comes top of mind. I mean, like this, you know, it, it's like the, I would say, the 100-meter sprint is the premier, in my opinion, that's mm -hmm. the premier event. Mm -hmm. So it would be pretty exciting, you know, when, when we had, well, we had, uh, at one point, we had Ben Johnson, and then we had, well, I can't remember his name right now. He was just on CBC the other day, won the gold. Yeah, the swimming. Yeah, and I meant actually the racing. So they're premier events. So I think we would certainly be pretty excited to see, for example, the Canadian women uh, soccer win gold. That's a premier event. So I think it, it it matters. I think some people just have a different, you know, scale of what is the, the. I think where where it matters when you see Matthew McConaughey at an event, then you know that's the event <laughs> that we want to win. All right, all right, all right. But you know, the reason I asked that question is because I was having a discussion with someone yesterday and. The initial response that I had to it was, you're nuts. And then you start thinking a little more. Here was the discussion that we were having. If Andre de Grasse, who is Canada's top sprinter and a gold Potential. medal contender in the 100 meters, mm -hmm. which, Sandy, you're right, is the creme de la creme event of any Olympics. The 100 men's 100 meters is the event. When Donovan Bailey won That's it, it was the biggest story. When exactly. Ben Johnson won it for lost it. 48 lost minutes, it, yeah. 48 yeah. hours, it was the biggest story. So the question was, Penny Alexiak has won four medals, including a gold. If Andre de Grasse wins the men's 100 meters, who carries the flag in the closing ceremonies? And your initial reaction, of course, is, well, Penny Alexiak, of course, she won four gold or she won four medals. But then you, go, you stop and you think, wait a second, mm -hmm. would that be as easy a choice as we think it is right now? Because it hasn't happened yet with the 100 meters. Or so does it matter what events we win? If we win the premier event of the Olympics, do we, I know it in, 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 uh, Vancouver, the only medal, and I, I mean, people get mad when I say this, but it's true. The only medal that really mattered was, was the men's and the women's hockey, hockey. gold medals. Had Sidney Crosby or someone else from Canada not scored, those Olympics probably would not have been seen as near the success mm -hmm. for Canada that it was mm -hmm. that yeah. goal and the women's gold medal made everything else better. And so if we win the plum event of the Olympics, does it overshadow anything else? Does it change the narrative that we have right now about how we've done? I think this is an exceptional situation though, because maybe, you know, that is a premier event. Maybe it's a big deal, but what counterbalances that is that no Canadian has ever done Absolutely. what Penny Elysiac did. It's historic. And yeah, I, she came out of nowhere. No Canadian has ever done that. It's historic. Yeah, I, she deserves it. It doesn't matter to me if he wins the gold or not in the 100 meter. Uh, I think she, having done something that no Canadian has ever done before, that's worthy of note for sure. Yeah, you know what? And, and it's the it's the issue of is a is one gold medal worth more than another gold medal. And I can tell you that when it comes time for sponsorships, right. one gold medal can be very different from another very gold different. medal. Now, I think Penny Alexiak has put herself in a position where she's got sponsors who will be clamoring for her, right. whether she carries the flag or not. She's set herself up very nicely. But I absolutely believe that if Andre DeGrasse were to win the 100 meters, we have a discussion about who was the most outstanding athlete of these Olympics. Well, and to knock off Usain Bolt would be... That's... Right. Yeah. And you know. one other thing that I... that This was really funny. This is another thing from the Olympics that... that it's the one little thing that drives me nuts. You can... And this does... This takes nothing away from what, again, what Penny Alexiak has been doing because she goes in the pool and she lands on the podium. You can't do better than that. But they don't have... For, like, soccer... Well, we're going to have a 90-minute soccer medal and an 80-minute soccer medal and a 45-minute soccer medal. You, your team, you, if you're a soccer player, you can only win mm -hmm. one medal. Mm -hmm. And so if you are Christine Sinclair, for example, the captain of the women's soccer team, if they were to win the gold... Oh, I never thought of that. She can't win four medals because right. she's only... Swimming has so many different... You have the 100-meter, right. the 200-meter, the 50-meter. It's the same thing. It's just different distances. Doesn't take anything away from what she's doing. But you're, Michael Phelps, if he was a soccer player, Wouldn't have couldn't have had the medals that he has. He's in a sport that allows him to win this number of medals. At the same time, though, uh, you suggest that those disciplines are all pretty you know, similar. 
I don't know that they are. I mean, I'm I, talking I, about the ones of the same stroke of different distances, but she's doing different strokes no, as I, well. I think even in that case, uh, what you have to do, and I, I think you saw it in the 50-meter uh, fly. I mean, uh, the guys, they, they go in there, they don't breathe from the time they hit the water till the time they hit the wall. You it's know? like me doing the show. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah that. Uh, but, you know... Th- that takes a different kind of mindset, a different kind of, of ability than pacing yourself for 200 meters or 400 meters or, you know, competing in a, in a medley. Breathing techniques are different for all, all four strokes. Um, yeah, to be good in a variety of those disciplines, I think, makes you an exceptional athlete in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, it always leads to the argument that has been going on lately about who's the greatest Olympian. Because right. a lot of people are having it. Usain Bolt or Michael Phelps. And until you can't count medals, because until you offer Usain Bolt a 150-meter race and a 50-meter race and a 100 and maybe a backwards running race and a crossover I mean, it, it's just, it's not apples and apples. Absolutely no, not. not. And compared to athletes that have come before that did it without sponsorship, that did it without a, you know, financial support, that did it without the kinds of you know, highly, uh, you know, the, the hi- highly manufactured technical advances in their equipment. I mean, so, so I think there's a show I watched where they just sort of compared, you know, two events. I think it was the DeGrasse was in it and showing mm. how he, he actually manufactured shoes so that he would have the same kinds of shoes that, that, um, who was it with the Hitler Olympic camera? Jesse right? Owens. Jesse, Jesse Owens, Owens yeah. yeah. So that, you know, how, so that it's really hard to, the, the greatest Olympian because the conditions change so, so dramatically. But I have to say, I'd never thought about what you're talking about, that, that, you know, if you're on the women's soccer team and you win gold and it's a massive feat to knock off Germany. And I mean, I think they played them 13 times and finally beat mm-hmm. them, but you only get one medal for that, right? Yeah. And, and can't you count all the medals that each well, team? You know, that, to, that to <laughs> me, yeah, yeah. that to me is what uh, I believe what you should do. If you are on the, because Canada tends to do well in, we, not so much this Olympics, but generally in team sports, right? Our women's soccer team is doing yeah, well. Our women's, women's basketball hockey. team, our two hockey teams, they only count for one. Right. If you've got 18 members on the hockey team, that medals. should be 18 medals. I think so. Different disciplines, though, right? Of I course. Mean, there's and they're never going to do Individual sports it. versus team sports. That's a but, whole different ballgame. But I think you, the points, I take your point that we're, we're you know celebrating Michael Phelps because he has, what, 23 medals now? 23 well, gold, I think, isn't it? He's got, I don't know, he's, he's lost. They brought. They bring in a Brinks truck every year yeah. just to carry them all away. <laughs> but had he be the most, the premier soccer player of the world on a on the U.S. Olympics, he might have team, four medals. Have, yeah. yeah, right, right. It's it, it makes for an interesting discussion, and that's the discussion that this person raised with me last night about the idea of Penny Alexiak versus Andre DeGrasse as an example. And again, Andre DeGrasse still has to win that gold medal. He there's no, and and I. I don't want anyone to think, like, we're not taking away from what Penny Alexiak has done. All you can ask of an athlete is, if there's an event and you end up on the podium, that's all you can do. Mm-hmm. You, you can't win two medals in one event. So it, as long as you're swimming and they throw an event in front of you and you land on the podium, that, that's great. That's fantastic. That's, that's what can be asked of you. But it does make for an interesting discussion, and it will lead to, I think, one of the all-time greatest Lou Marsh Award Voting Debates, decisions. Yeah. If he mm. were, because uh, I keep mentioning Andre DeGrasse, because there is nobody else I don't think in these games who actually has a chance to eclipse mm-hmm. Penny Alexiak now, because he is the only guy who's running in that premier event right. who has a chance. Right. I don't think there's someone in some other sport that could take that. But if he were to somehow win that, boy, that would be an interesting debate for Certainly. who is the Canadian athlete of the year. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. On a much more morose and serious note from the Olympics, we know all about the drug thing that the Russians were allowed to come. We know what the the International Paralympic Committee did about banning the Russians. But to me right now in the Olympics, the most troubling and aggravating and angering thing and I mean, honestly, when I read these stories, I get enraged by this. These are the Olympics. And Sandy, a few minutes ago, you talked about how you want this to be the Olympics, where it's about sportsmanship and everything. We have a story about the Lebanon team not allowing the Israeli team onto a bus, physically blocking them mm-hmm. from coming. A Saudi Arabian wrestler refusing to wrestle, or judo wrestler, judo fighter refusing to fight an Israeli. A... Back in the Olympic qualifiers, there was a um, 
uh, a Saudi wrestler who ref- a boxer. Um, a, sorry, a Syrian boxer refused to fight against an Israeli, quit boxing to not have to fight an Israeli. And today in judo, an Israeli judo fighter again beat an Egyptian fighter who wouldn't shake his hand and then barely would barely bow to him, got, had to be dragged back almost onto the mat. What should the, I mean, the IOC has clearly shown, the International Olympic Committee has clearly shown through its decisions about the Russians and drugs and everything that it really has no backbone. But when this stuff starts to happen, which flies directly into the teeth of the athlete's pledge and what the Olympics are about and sportsmanship and not politics and everything else, what should the IOC do, Scott? What should be the proper response to this? I don't think this is anything new. Well, of course no, it isn't. No. I, go I back mean, to Munich. It, well, right. not just Munich. You go back to Los Angeles and uh, black, black power, power symbols. Yeah. You go back to Mexico 1936 City, yeah. and Jesse Owens. I mean, this has been uh, an ugly thread through the Olympic movement for decades. Um, what do we do about it? I don't know that you can change human nature um, overnight or e- even completely uh, over time. There are always going to be those who have hatred in their hearts for others, be it on an ethnic basis, be it on a, a religious, on a, a racial basis, whatever. There are always going to be those conflicts. Um, can we can we get them out of the Olympics? No, we'd like to have that ideal that we could, that this is, this is the one place where we forget all of those things. But I, p- people are human. I think that's always you going to be a part of it. You can't say you have to participate. You have to behave in a proper way and treat your co-athletes with respect or else we will take action. You're going to ban the whole country or just yeah. just that one athlete? Either one. Well, Either if, one. if they're acting if out the of Lebanon, turn. If you're the Lebanon delegation who will not allow the Israeli team to get on a team bus, and I say fine, and I, as I said this the other day on the show, I say fine, bus driver, the airport is right up there. That's where they're going. They are disqualified. They're on their way home. Sandy, how, how difficult can this be? This is the whole Olympic idea is that politics... Scott, you're right. Yeah. Politics, we're, we're nuts to actually, we don't believe it, but the ideal is that politics have been put aside. This is sportsmanship and a, a, a bubble from the rest of the world where we can show the world can come together. What's the line they always use? It can come together every quadrennial to compete under the banner of friendship and sportsmanship and everything. If you can't do that, should something not be done? Well, I think that we are naive in thinking... By the way, Scott, that was so well put, what you said. that the, I, thought, I thought I wouldn't even comment, because how can I follow that? It was so well put. But I think that if you have, I mean, if there's this unwritten expectation that we will, we, have, we will act with decorum and that there's this whole, the whole thing about sportsman-like behavior. But if, we, it, but if there's no written, codified expectations... Uh, I think that they're, they're just, there's just such a gray area that this is okay. So even though you did say but that... But there is. Sorry, let me interrupt. Because okay, there is written, you. codified... Well, there we go. Here is what the athletes have to yes. pledge to. In the name of all competitors, all competitors, I promise that we shall take part in these Olympic Games, respecting and abiding by the rules that govern them, in the true spirit of sportsmanship for the glory of sport and the honor of our teams. So... It, it, it's in the, I don't know how you can possibly argue that refusing to shake hands with a competitor on religious or political mm-hmm. or hatred grounds falls into the boundaries of sportsmanship. Okay, that, that sounds good. Uh, that pledge, that sounds great. But it, it's just like a, a mission statement. Um, they mean nothing. They sound great and they mean nothing nine times out of ten. And, Agreed. Agreed. And you, you can say that, but what is the honor of your, honor of your team? Uh, is the honor of your team to refuse to shake the hands of an Israeli or your sworn enemy? Is the honor of your team uh, to to represent the the oppressed blacks uh, in uh, your community who have who feel that they have been uh, you know downtrodden? I mean, what is what is the honor of your team? So you're saying the wording might actually be working against it? It's it's mealy mouth. I mean, you can you can interpret it in a hundred thousand different ways mm-hmm. depending on your point of view, and argues uh, you know. Uh, Lawyers for for different Olympic committees will argue differently. Uh, you can say anything you want, but in the end, it's going to come down to individual humans. Okay, but let me let me ask you one thing. Then this is because it's always in these Olympics anyway. It's always against the Israeli delegation. What if a pick your country? I won't name one. Pick whatever country you want. We're in a competition and said I refuse to compete against a black athlete. Do you think the IOC would stand by in that case and say? 
oh, that's fine. That's just your own personal lease. I'm no. telling you, they would be tossed. There's no way you would be allowed to take that position. No, and I take your point. Um, I will not wrestle against a gay athlete. Mm-hmm. There is no chance that would be allowed to stand. Right. I, I don't believe. I'd be shocked if it was. I, I take your point. And, and to an extent, I agree with you that, you know, if you refuse to do that, I believe individual athletes should be banned from the next competitions or, or you know, uh, suspended from the sanctioned in some way. But... Do I think it's ever going to be taken out of the Olympic mix? No, I don't think it's ever going to disappear. It, well, it certainly won't if the IOC won't ever take a stand to start laying the groundwork to say this is not acceptable. I agree. And, and having a little more teeth to, to, I didn't realize that there was anything codified, but having a little more teeth to it and at least, you know, you, you preface this whole conversation by saying they can't, they have a difficulty with even enforcing their, their you know, their, their drug use ban. Um, so, but that doesn't prevent us from at least, at least, you know, pushing to, to make some steps towards, uh, you know, having some more teeth to this. And uh, often those vision statements or, you know, if you have ethical policies, what they need to literally do is to start to outline behaviors. I mean, you can't just say, well, you, you can't leave it in such a gray area. You have to say this behavior is an example of this and this won't be tolerated and that there'll be provisions and sanctions for it. It's like the United Nations. Now you start to get into international sports federations right. and you start to get into uh, uh, commercial interests right. and you start to get into a lot of other mm-hmm. competing factors. Right. It's not just athleticism. It's not just athletes, pure and simple, competing. No, absolutely not. There's a million other things going on there. And yeah, you could say, okay, we're going to sanction these guys. We're going to sanction the Russians. What happens next time around if the American team is found to be cheating? Do we sanction? sanction it's a great point. You know, it's a great point because honestly, the, I, I said the reason the Russians were allowed to be in this Olympics was because they were too big to kick out. That's right. And your point about the Olympics let, or the Americans? Let's say that there was a a sudden surge of bu- positive drug tests of Olympic athletes of American athletes. The Russians will be screaming for the Americans to be out next time. And the one thing the IOC doesn't want is to lose NBC's money. Yeah. Right. That's exactly. paying for the Olympics. That's right. And oh, so yeah. we got to be very careful. They're, I mean, they're walking on eggshells going, we got to be careful. We don't put ourselves in a position. And here. I mean, do you think Carl Lewis and Florence Johnson were clean? Mm-hmm. I don't. Flojo, uh, no. No. Didn't Carl Lewis say he wasn't? And well, Carl he, Lewis he was busted to. once, but it was not in competition. It wasn't a thing, and it was, it's right. unclear. It was, you know, there's a lot of stuff that was right. that was going on. But uh, let me give you another example because this again, this thing comes back to Israeli athletes. Who part of this too? Let's not forget the Israeli athletes at the Olympics. There, yeah. yeah, there is a history here mm-hmm. that we can't or shouldn't forget about. If an American. Who, because here's the thing, the countries that are refusing to be involved with the Israelis, the commentary coming from some of the countries is, we're at war with them. So we cannot, in good conscience, shake their hand, what if, you know, you, whatever. Well, the Americans are at war with some Muslim countries. What if an American athlete (laughs) competed against a Muslim athlete Mm -hmm. and refused to shake his hands on those grounds? I can tell you what the response would be, not only in North America, but the IOC would go nuts about that. Right. So my question, I guess, is if any group should understand the delicacy around the Israeli thing, having been through Munich, then last Olympics refusing to honor the Israelis who were killed. If you remember, when they had it in London, the IOC wouldn't allow oh, a ceremony. How can the IOC continue to allow one delegation that is constantly being bullied to continue to be bullied? That's my point. Because any other group, I guarantee you, they would stand up against. No, and you're right about that. And it comes down to anti-Semitism, obviously. How do you remove that, not just from the Olympics, but how do you remove that from the world? Because that's the issue. But I don't think the IOC has to remove it from the world. That's not their role. But they this is their stage. No, this is their show. They can say, here, it can't happen or you go home. Here, that can't happen or you're out. Uh, what you do at home is your choice. Right. But they mm-hmm. won't even do it here where they have complete control. control. Yep. And so, and so why are they willfully blind to this? That's the thing that yeah. drives me nuts because, again, I guarantee you that if Joe Schmo, who was in some sort of event was wrestling against or was supposed to be wrestling against a gay athlete and the person said, no, they're a homosexual. I will not wrestle with them. 
Yeah, it'd blow up pretty good. Yeah, it would be, and it would be a major international event. Mm-hmm. That person would be kicked out of the Olympics. Would be sanctioned. Would be told you have to, or you're eliminated. It's, it's, to me, it's abundantly clear what would happen. Is it just that the Israeli thing is not politically correct? And you know, lest anyone think, well, you know, whatever. If this was any country that had been through this kind of thing, we always go back to Munich. What happened there was clear example of why you can't let this carry on. Yeah. Eventually, you work to you work mm-hmm. towards these kind of things. And you would like to be get back to my Pollyanna view of the the Olympics, which you're just killing tonight. By the way, <laughs> <laughs> but the, we did win a gold medal uh, today. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But you know, there there have been these sort of watershed moments through the Olympics where where these um, inequities or social injustices have been addressed. So Jesse Owens was a moment where you know uh, even Jim Thorpe before that, which mm-hmm. was the uh, Aboriginal. Uh, runner from the states and I think even addressing the idea of, of uh, homosexuality in the Olympics, sexism in the Olympics. So you'd like to see that there's a watershed moment where there's such a big public forum, you know, national, international forum, that these kinds of ha- examples of hatred in people's hearts actually uh, are, can be come to the fore and be addressed, be, that, that hopefully this provides the kind of forum, the kind of opportunity to actually f- address these uh, head on and make these a part of those those you know, those moments that we go back in history to say some things after this moment, things change. This is supposed to be the stage where things are better. That's right. Where you have a perfect scenario where you can affect some kind of change. It doesn't change the world, as Scott says, but where you can at least say, look, in the Olympics, we bring everyone together and look what we're able to achieve. Want to hear more? Download the podcast on iTunes or Google Play and listen to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML.